I'm going to sort of throw in the Old Testament sort of corporate flourishing idea and spin that up. And then Cormac's going to have a go at me for being a commie. Um, no, I'm just joking. Just have a go about the personal freedom I might. versus... If you say something that just... <laughs> that doesn't agree with us. Like the worst... Listen to this guy, everybody. He's just like the worst. He has no idea what he's talking about. No idea. Let me tell you. No idea. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life. Conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is freedom. And I really wanted to use that Mel Gibson clip from Braveheart and go, freedom, at this point. But I, yeah, I couldn't find it. And it was, well, maybe we can get it into the artwork, um, like in some way that doesn't breach copyright. In a world where technology allows us to see and experience different things, um, to do all kinds of things that we couldn't before. Are we truly free? Is this a free world that we're in? And what does freedom actually mean? I'm your host, Peter Holmes. I'm Today I'm joined by co-host Cormac McCann. Welcome, Cormac. Wild ride. Great to be here. And uh, Silvana Scarf, who's kind of on the, on the cusp of, you know, she's not really a guest anymore. She works as a research assistant to the Most Reverend Richard Umbers, Auxiliary Bishop of Sydney, but has been on this show before and hopefully will be again. So welcome, Silvana. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Good, good. And before we get started, it's just a reminder to listeners, if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app. That way you won't miss an episode. Let's get into today's topic on freedom. What is freedom? It's come up a lot in the news and on commentary lately. But what is freedom? Is it freedom to choose? Is it personal preference? Um, what, what do we reckon? Start with you, Silvana. What is freedom? Well, I think freedom is really tied up with our ability to choose to do something or not to do something. So when we are faced with um, a choice, we can either choose to say yes or no. So we're choosing to say yes to one thing or no, and in doing that, choosing to say no to something else. If we don't have the ability to be able to choose something, then we're not actually free. Let's say you choose to have chocolate. Uh, the choice is I'm giving you, you can have chocolate or raspberry topping. You choose one of them. What, what if you want to choose both of them? I think I might uh, exercise my freedom to do a little cheating and uh, look up the Catechism of the Catholic Church's definition of freedom. Uh, and so we have here that freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. By free will, one shapes one's own life. And the definition goes on and on from there. Yeah, I think those last that last sentence is probably a big one in our definitions. Uh, by free will, one shapes one's own life. So the point um, I think Savannah was mentioning earlier about the ability to say no or yes to something, I would have pushed it just a fraction further and said, the decisions that we make when we have the ability to say yes or no to something actually end up shaping us. They, they form who we are and what we participate in and what, what actions we participate in. But let me throw a kind of a curveball at you, Cormac. By accessing the catechism of the church, didn't you just give up your personal freedom to think laterally and outside the box? Did you just hand over your personal freedom to this monolithic organization, the church? 
Well, I, I think that's an interesting point you raise, Peter, because I don't think anyone's concept of freedom taken seriously and when they take it seriously themselves themselves is not going to be so arbitrary as to be devoid of any attachment to a particular community or society or culture or set of legal norms, principles uh, that inform their view of freedom. So I don't think any serious person gets up and says, freedom is the ability to do whatever I want when I want. I think at the very basic level, someone will always add the caveat, so long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Some people, I mean, many, many people say freedom's the ability to do whatever I feel like, basically. There are lots of students that will just come straight out and say that. And if you Absolutely. push them and say, what if it hurts someone else? Some of them won't even stop there. Because it depends on how much they're hurting them, you know. If it's, if it's not illegal, if it's a, you know, it's if it's within it's still my right to say whatever I freedom of speech or something. It doesn't matter if it hurts someone. It's my right to oh. pursue a certain thing. I um, think a lot of people are being a little bit facetious, though. In some cases, I, I look, I, I'll concede that yeah, you there definitely are those types, you know, who are kind of ultra on the freedom is whatever I want to do. And free speech is a different, I'd say, it's a different conversation that we'd have to have there. But the, let's talk about the freedom to kind of do what I want to the point of hurting someone else. Um, for example, you know, I don't think that any serious person when probed enough would say that their understanding of what freedom is, is entirely created by their own conscious, you know, development of thought. I think that everyone's concept of what their ability to do or not do is fundamentally shaped by the kind of culture that they grow up in. What you're saying there is our freedom isn't just an individual person like an island in the middle of nowhere not influenced by anything. Our freedom is always within the parameters of, of where we are, right? Yeah, so, that's right. So you're always influenced. So you're choosing one or another option. Perhaps if we can throw back to Silvana at this point, is that what you meant by yes and no to things? Because in order to be able to say yes and no, there has to be something to say yes or no to. Absolutely. I think absolutely. And um, the boundaries, it's, it's interesting because when you look at freedom, um, freedom is very much dependent upon boundaries. And it might seem like uh, a contradiction when you, if, if you look at freedom from the perspective of it being, uh, as you've mentioned before, the idea that you can think and act and do anything you like in whatever way without any kind of repercussions at all and then you look at that and 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 we look at that in with regards to boundaries it's almost yeah it's a contradictory and but boundaries have wisdom and they're there for a reason to safeguard us we have laws to safeguard our country otherwise there would just be chaos and it would be tyranny everywhere mm. Was it Chesterton mm. that said that, you know, before taking down a fence, it's probably first wise to understand why it was put up in the first place? <laughs> Love it. Uh, I could be wrong it that is. it's Chesterton, but yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm not the But now the let me play the devil's advocate here. Let me play the devil's advocate and say the um, big brother in George Orwell would have argued that all of the rules that they put in place in, in, um, in that uh, sort of over-controlling society of um, 1984... Now, for those who aren't listeners, the book 1984 is what I'm talking about. And in this book, there's a portrayal of an over-controlling government who could try to control even the way people think. Um, but even that that big brother, which is the name of, they give to the government sort of observer, would have claimed that all their rules were for the good of the people. So surely there's still a tension there when we say the rules are for good. That's true. But 
there's still a tension there between the rules that are made for everyone's good and our individual capacity to say yes or no, isn't there? I think there's always tension. I think you're right. I think there's always a, a pushing between uh, the individual desire to act in the way that we see fit and then the restraints put on us by the government or even by our own you know, norms in our own culture. The, those unwritten rules, those manners and habits that we say, you just don't do that to somebody else. <laughs> you know? Can you <laughs> give me an example, Cormac? So this is something you're saying, something that's not illegal, but generally speaking, all of us don't do it because it's a socially accepted norm. Is that what you're saying? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think we can find all those kinds of examples in our everyday life. I mean, I experience it as, you know, as a husband and a parent where I get up and I go, well, you know what? I know it's my morning job to unstack the dishwasher and I've got to take out the garbage and different things, but I might elect to not do that today. But if I, you know, but there's a there's a kind of a, a social pressure placed on me and an expectation that I that I adhere to, I submit to, to say, well, no, this is my contribution to keeping this family unit in the house that's tied to that our family life, uh, keeping that in order, uh, and so I could elect not to do it if I so chose to, but it would unleash consequences. And See, there's so, the key word there, consequences, isn't mm, it? Absolutely. So, for example. In my yes and no to things, I'm I'm free to make my choices. So technically speaking, there's no law that prevents me from buying a knife, for example, in Australia. Um, I have got plenty in my house um, and I'm free to use them. There's no one actually regulating every time I pick up a knife. But if I misuse my freedom to harm someone, then that freedom might be temporarily taken away from me. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a consequence to the use of my freedom, which might come up. So the consequence of you failing to unstack the dishwasher might not be quite as harsh, but it, you know, that depends on who you ask, maybe your wife, but <laughs> the consequences are still there. Yeah, I'm like, let's, not, let's not go there. <laughs> the point is, is that we have a freedom, but there are consequences to each each and every choice we make. And not even arbitrarily outside that some kind of external force is going to then deprive you of something as a result. That's a common way I think we do think about freedom, that you misbehave in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of the community and they, you know, do a hopefully a proportionate response to correct your behavior, to deprive yep. you of the freedom you improperly exercised. However, we were talking before about, you know, the idea that um, freedom being the ability to say yes or no Uh in, and I assume implicitly in the present moment, but right. not all choices are going to just simply be about being washed away in the whims of whatever's going on right in front of you. Uh, we might have goals that we are trying to pursue that might not take us one immediate choice. There might be, we want to save up for a really nice car. We want to get that job promotion. We want to complete this particular university course. And that requires us using our freedom properly to choose several times a day, a week, a month to continue striving towards that aim and then yep. to not choose that aim. So, for example, I'm not going to study or I am going to spend my money on beers instead of putting it into my savings account so I can save up for the car. There's a consequence to that that impacts me and my goals and my desires. Let's come at freedom from the human flourishing point of view. So the purpose of freedom is not just to indulge in any whim that I like. Otherwise, it would be basically Tim Tam's wall to wall and I would be dead in five years. 
Um, the, <laughs> the, the, particularly since I'm allergic to chocolate. <laughs> so it's going to be five years then. Maybe dead sooner. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'm, I've never tested it to that length. I've never tried to do suicide by chocolate, but that might be something that works in terms of an experiment. The point is, is that. I just my latest whim is not a good ex, a good use of my freedom. The purpose of freedom is to choose things that led to our flourishing. But the question I'm going to put to you guys is: Is it just about my individual flourishing, or is it about the the communal flourishing? So, am I also working towards not just my flourishing, but your flourishing and everybody else in my community's flourishing? And it's not just that the laws of our country and our moral laws and our our religious understanding of you know, moral choices lead us towards, yeah, okay, I can't do nasty things to you, but I'm actually responsible for your flourishing, that I contribute to your flourishing. So, for example, in the Old Testament, a very rich person who's had a really good year of crops and they've got a lot of stuff is responsible for actually helping the next door neighbor who's suffered in some way and they've, the whole business has crashed and they're, they're down and out and they're trying to sell out the business. So instead of buying him out and becoming a bigger business, in Israel, the, the person with a lot of money would be responsible for helping get the other guy back on his feet. And so you've got, instead of having one bigger business, you've got a whole lot of people who are flourishing in their own right. So the widows and the orphans and the, the refugees and people who haven't got anything are um, are being helped by people who do have something. I think it is really interesting that you've, you said that there's an idea um I think it might be an Aristotle who's an old school philosopher for those not familiar with him. Um, he has this image of the community as being like a living organism. Think of it as the body of a person, if you like. And the idea was that uh, each member of the community could be uh, associated with a particular like body part, like the hand or the neck or, and so if one person was failing, then the whole body could be thought of as failing at the same time. So that if, you know, this area, a poor area, of the community had, you know, a viral outbreak and it was suffering and it was your speaking. hand, your community. Uh, and there's a, um, and so, yeah, hypothetically speaking. And so the idea is then that, what happens you know to one is the responsibility and does impact the entire community now whether that idea actually is able to be sustained in the in the modern nation state like a modern country like australia i'm not convinced uh simply because i uh, i think that we that it could only be true if it is true at all to a particular extent and we need to think of it i think in terms of degrees of separation my responsibility for my immediate family maybe my co-workers or my friends but given that i'm a member i'm an australian citizen and we might think that okay i'm a member of this australian community am i responsible for the all of australia doing well well what's a small business owner in perth got to do with me what has yep. a cattle farmer in Young got to do and his particular flourishing? What's, what's an yep. academic in Melbourne and probably knowing her, you know, intellectual leanings being in Melbourne, what uh, what, what would I want to do with them? You know? Well, in fairness, the biblical the biblical account is only ever about a, a geographical location. So they, they, you know, they're not dealing with governments which stretch and they're not dealing with taxes. They're not dealing with any of these things. They're dealing with someone's in my neighborhood 
am I responsible? That's right. And, and I think that's the extent we need to be mindful of when we say, well, if I'm a member of a political community, which what Aristotle would have been talking about, the member of your political community, I think we're talking about a far more concentrated, smaller geographic area. So to the extent that I'm responsible for other people's flourishing, I think the onus of responsibility has to be extremely limited toward like to, to be far narrower than the entire nation, certainly far narrower than the state and probably narrower than the city and maybe even narrower than my own suburb given the way a lot of our communities carry on. So if Jesus came to you and said, who is my neighbour? Um, this is your answer to that question, is it? Oh, I don't, but I, and that's a good point. In that, in that, I might fly to Perth, for example, and I might meet a small business owner who has been, you know, interrupted and, and badly impacted by all of the, say, the restrictions that have been going on in recent months, uh, and and really been impacted by the way that our economies have changed. I think that that would place a certain onus of responsibility on me in that moment to say, yeah. spend a bit of money to keep his business going or you and know, you gave us an example it- in a hmm. in a prior episode you told us an example of someone who saw people in the queue for unemployment and literally helped them out in some tangible way but what i mean i've never met the farmers in new south wales i mean i've met one of them but not all of them right and yet i go to the supermarket and take all their produce you know all there's a supply chain there there's a, there's a reliance as a community on a much broader range of people than just my local suburb like the 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 tomato i had on my my lunch wasn't grown in in my suburb it was you know it was shipped in from somewhere else and there's all kinds of reach of this community which goes beyond that ancient kind of idea of just the local area you know in a certain sense we benefit from a broader range of community and and therefore i would suggest that at least our concept of responsibility to that wider community needs to extend as far as where our benefits extend. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. You know, I actually did not, and I will concede, I did not consider, you know, the fact that, you know, we actually do shop from fresh, like freshly grown markets. We try and get locally sourced uh, Australian produce whenever we can. But I sure. do think that that's a narrow view of community to only limit it to the economic sure. you know, as well. So there's got to be other kind of social support that we can consider. And... Mm. We haven't even, and I think Silvana might be able to comment on then what kind of approach we then take as a as a nation if we say, well, maybe my obligations don't extend as far as, you know, the bloke in Queensland or, you know, the, the girl in Perth. And yet we live in a society that taxes us, that uses our, our, our own creation of wealth to redistribute that wealth to those that need it, perhaps more so than we do it the government is better situated to to redistribute to people than i am so it's probably a good thing that there's an organized response in that respect i i think having heard what you've both just both perspectives i don't think it's it's an either or situation i think it's both if we're looking at individual flourishing we can't look at it separate to where we live and the people that we impact through our choices. We're not individuals. We are not an island. We aren't individually. We came into the world in relationship to other people. We live in relationship to other people. We live in community. So our own individual choices that we make for the for our own good and for our flourishing will impact the good of society and the good of the community that we live in. 
and whether or not that community can actually flourish in the way it was designed to or in the way that God intends it to. So I think it has to be, we have to look at it in, in both perspectives rather than in either or. Mm. Something that I I think really comes to bear on that is looking at more of the like interior freedom that we experience and what inhibits us from living those aspects of freedom. So if we look at like addictions, for example. Yes, right? good call. Someone's, someone who is addicted to alcohol or drugs um, or pornography, for example, in many ways they actually cannot, in their, in their daily choices to either engage in consuming whatever product they're consuming, they actually are not free to say no in their addiction by virtue of the way that addictions work and how um, uh, their experience of that plays out. Yeah. So it impinges upon their free will, basically. It, 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 it's such a pressure on them that they can't make a, a genuinely free choice. Absolutely. They're imprisoned by yeah. the addiction. They actually cannot make a free choice. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not to get to that point, decisions were made freely. Yep. So looking at that aside, but once you're in the throes of addiction, there's no freedom really there to actually freely say yes or no to whatever you're, you're choosing. I think it's an appropriate juncture to to say that I actually consulted some uh, very faithful listeners to this podcast and mentioned that I might be recording uh, a podcast on freedom and did they have any suggestions? And I got a wealth of information and suggestions on topics. And one thing that particularly uh, struck me was uh, someone's suggestion for the relationship between boundaries and freedom. So again, we've been talking about this direction of freedom and how we kind of channel it. Well, what's going to help us stay within the confines of that? What's keeping you and me married, Peter? You know, what are the kinds of expectations? Sorry, that are, are we married? Do different things. <laughs> I, did, I didn't say yes to you. <laughs> faithful in our own marriages, Peter. Oh, right. Come in, on. Independently married to, to women elsewhere. That's right. That's, that's right. Okay. You know, you know. And I, I don't know if you're my type, Peter. Um, <laughs> I certainly like them less hairy. <laughs> Sorry, Can't on. have it all. That's all right. <laughs> but I think what I like this um this quote that was suggested to me from Chesterton, uh, that uh, we might fancy some children playing on the flat grassy top of some tall island in the sea. So long as there was a wall round the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were broken down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. They did not fall over. But when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the centre of the island and their song had ceased. That's a Chesterton quote. Absolutely it's, it is. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm stunned because I've been using a story from my own life, which is very similar as an example in classes for, for decades now. When I was about 12 years old, I went to a place in northwestern Tasmania called The Nut, and um, I, don't, well, I don't know if that's what it's still called, but then they, they nicknamed it the nut. And we climbed on top of it or on three sides of this huge rock. There were sheer drops into the ocean, you know, rocks, Ooh. waves, ocean. And on one side, there was this quite steep climb up to the top. But on top, it was big enough that there was a very small sort of farm, a historical farm. It wasn't currently in operation, but there were fences and things up there. And while we were there, a fog came down because we went there in winter. <laughs> 
so my parents could afford the holiday. Um, <laughs> a fog came down over the whole thing and we couldn't see our feet clearly. And my parents immediately yelled at us all to stop and stand exactly where we were because we knew where the ground was and if we took any steps, it could mean that we step over the edge. And uh, until my mum noticed that there was a corral, like a fence um, in one particular area, she moved us towards the, the fence and we, once we were inside this kind of fenced off area, that we were able to run around and play as much as, as freely as we liked. And I remember that being awesome because running your hands through this dense fog and seeing it swirl around was just an amazing experience. But it was only later when I got much older that my parents told me, yeah, this is why we put you in the fence because <laughs> there was literally the sound of the sea crashing against the base of this oh. entirely huge rock. So you're literally um, the embodiment of that Chesterton story. I just imagine <laughs> looking at going, I'm going to put that in a book, that kid Peter Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew Chesterton. I wish I knew him. He'd be one on top of my list of people to have a, a coffee or a, or a, you know, a port or a wine with. The point is that I usually tell the story is, is to do with the magisterium, that um, the magisterium is not about telling us what to think or, and when I say the magisterium, I mean the official kind of guidance we get from the Catholic Church uh, with regards to doctrinal and matters of faith and morals. So specifically saying this is something the Catholic Church teaches and this isn't. When I became a Catholic, many people thought I was giving up my intellectual freedom because I had to then conform to the church. But actually, I have less restrictions, less guidelines, less, you know, you must think this way since I've become a Catholic than before. Can you explain how that is? Because yeah, that, that, that's really, that strikes me as really interesting. Keep, keep well, going. When I was a Protestant, you know that there's a, it's possible to make a mistake. Anyone who's not um, utterly arrogant knows that they could make a mistake. And if I'm a minister and I'm teaching people about God and I'm teaching them about heaven and hell and, and how you get there and how you don't, then you need to be right about that. You can't. You don't want to be wrong about that kind of importance. And when people are asking you on the deathbed, am I going to heaven or hell? You, you need to actually not just have my personal opinion to offer them, but something that's certain, something that's sure. And as a Protestant, um, I spent a lot of my time stamping the ground, if you like, under the fog to make sure that it was solid. And, and, I was, and the main way to do that is to dwell the ground I'm standing right now is solid, so I'm going to stay right here. And what you tend to find in conservative Protestantism, and in some forms, I have to say, of Orthodoxy and, and Catholicism, is that once they've stamped a particular spot, they tend to like to stay there because it's absolutely solid and I don't want to move from this because I'm pretty sure it's, it's okay. But there's a freedom in having boundaries because once you have solid boundaries, once you know someone's going to pull you up before you get to the edge of the cliff, you can run and play and and be joyful as you said the children on top of that mountain so that hill in um the island in gk cheston's quote the ones who had the fence came you know they're free to express themselves they're free to explore they're free to be joyful in their circumstances where if they're but if they have nothing between them and the edge if there's a danger of them plummeting over their choices are either to just lollop around freely and watch some of their friends go ah oh, over the edge every now and then, <laughs> which is what Protestant life is like, or you you have you know a fence which basically you know will stop you before you get to the edge, but you're free within those parameters. There's very little the Catholic Church says about what you must think about the Bible, for example, and since I'm studying Scripture, that's what concerns me. Very little about what you must say. 
it says a few things about what you can't say. You can't say it's a load of bollocks. You can't say, you know, it's all made up. You can't say God had nothing to do with it. You can't say humans had nothing to do with it. So there's a, there's a few boundaries. But within those boundaries, there's an immense amount of freedom. And there's a joy in that freedom because you know, if I get too far, I'll bounce against one of the fences. And that leaves me free not to have to worry about misleading people drastically so long as I know I'm within the fences. Isn't that interesting? Is there, I'm wondering if there's an example you know, of, of a really good, um, a really good fence and, and, and where you feel you felt as a Catholic comfortable to then explore different ideas. I know like you've got PhDs going on, you've taught a lot of different classes. Is there an example you could give there? The interpretation of texts. So when I was a Lutheran, I was generally speaking, watching myself very carefully in my interpretation of text because I, uh, you know, when you're trying to preach and you have no one to verify whether it's true or not, you're relying on yourself to get it right. And, you know, you might like the idea that some of your friends agree with your interpretation, but that's not a guarantee of being right either. I mean, you you can be in a group of like minded people and they're all wrong. If I'm offering advice to the old lady who's dying in the hospital or the young girl who's on her deathbed and she's, you know, five years old and dying of cancer, all these kinds of situations where it's not just a theological opinion, you're talking about a real hard question. What's going to happen next? What do I need to do to get right with God? What are, you know, all those kinds of questions. You need to know the answers to those. And once I, once I was a Catholic, these answers have been hammered out over 2,000 years and, and the wrong answers, if you like, have been gradually, gradually weeded out to the point where we have a range within which we can say this is true, that's not true sort of thing. There's no one answer to some of these big questions, but the answers that matter have already been hammered out to the point where you know when you're off the rails. So when I look at texts such as um, Genesis, for example, the, the creation accounts in Genesis, if you're a Protestant, Basically, people ask you the question, all right, did Adam exist? And that decides where you fit. Are you in this bunch of Protestants who basically could throw out the Trinity tomorrow if they wanted to? Um, Because they're so loose with their definitions, they could just do that. Or you're over here with everyone who insists on the seven-day creation. And if you don't believe that, you're absolutely out of our group because you don't believe in God kind of thing. Whereas as a Catholic, there is an entire range of possibilities there. There's an entire range of possibilities within that. There are limits to what you can and can't say. You can't say they didn't exist, that it was made up. You can't say that it's all a a big, completely invented story or something like that. But there's a whole range of possibilities within which I can try and interpretively create these things. And if I get it wrong, and this is the key part, if I get it wrong, I know that eventually someone will come and tap me on the shoulder and go, Oi, you numpty you got that bit wrong and you're causing problems. And so long as I'm o- open to that kind of correction, mm. well, I'm fine. Well, I think that's where that brings us back, you know, I think to the individual pursuit of what I want versus how does the community help direct me towards living, you know, a better life. But you may raise an interesting point that some communities can either live in isolation or in ignorance. And I'm interested in the notion from each of you of, um, well, am I free to think, the wrong thing am i sure free to choose something i'm I, that i may, may not know is the right thing or maybe willfully know is harmful for me look Cormac, i can have opinions and you've you might have noticed i do have some <laughs> in fact which are completely not 
supported by the church in the sense of that they have they've neither been commanded nor forbidden by the church, right? Their opinions about things. They're just out there, right? The difference is, and if I'm teaching, especially if I'm claiming to represent the Catholic viewpoint on something, I have to be careful to identify what is just a personal, my best judgment on something, or whether it's actually something which I'm certain that the church has confirmed as true. We've talked in this podcast about the use, the best use of freedom as aiming towards a particular good or a goal, or it's a better use of freedom than simply acting on a whim. The Christian understanding of what it means to live a heroic life is, you know, is this kind of heroic virtue, the exercise of love, love even to the point of loving one's enemies. And even when it sometimes might even seem not even just inconvenient, but would really like not be beneficial to you in the immediate, in the short term to do something. And it's I'm worth just pointing make... out there, though. Sorry, before you go on, mm. Cormac, when we say loving one's enemies, it's worth pointing out that love uh, in the scriptures, at least, and in the Christian tradition, has never been about feeling warm, gushy thoughts about other people. Love is always to do to do what is good for people. So that mm-hmm. when Jesus says, "Love your enemies," he's not saying you know fall in love with them. He's saying do what is right and just by them. Uh, you can't yeah, control your emotions an, yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's an important distinction to make. Uh, the point being uh, that where is that? St- I, I'm just trying to understand that point of the, that that steps over that point of departure from doing what is good for me and saying, well, I've got this particular goal in mind of living this kind of life is going to be good, to the point of this idea of love as doing what is good for the other, uh, living a life that's actually putting someone else's good before my own as a, as a kind mm. of teaching as this is actually the best use of freedom. And I actually have sometimes have difficulty seeing that the, those two concepts, you know, are not in conflict. You know, no. this is, I've kind of got my attitude it to It comes life. back to the full knowledge thing though, Cormac. It comes back to full knowledge. I mean, I know what the oh well let's let's be realistic nobody really knows what's involved in marriage uh, even people who've been involved in it for some time <laughs> but but you know at least you have to be of a state of mind where you understand the level of commitment you're giving yourself to but it is one of the purest acts of freedom to give yourself fully over to a vocation such as marriage or ordination or something like that which mm. binds you to the very things which some people in the world might think are actually the absence of freedom that you are now responsible in a most intimate way for the happiness of other people. And even when I first got married, I thought it was very much about my wife's happiness. But then I realized that both of our happinesses, if that's the right plural for happiness, <laughs> both of our happiness uh, is tied up with the happiness of our children and their ultimate flourishing. So. Uh, Mm, and, and, I'm, not, not, I'm not going to go. Yeah, we, we can talk about whether the goal of your marriage is to make them happy, but but yeah, but well, happy in the sense of blessed and flourishing, mm, flourishing. Okay, as that human might be being. a better term. So, in other words, I want to see them um, become great people, and I mean great not in the sense of the world's estimation of great, but people who are uh, morally um, not just morally good, but that they genuinely have a heart for their neighbour. They have genuine care for people they have an integrity in their actions uh, that's consistent and um i think coming back to their to the original idea of freedom of being the ability to say yes and no that the reasons they say yes to things and the things they choose to say yes to are ordered towards their ultimate good and the good of those around them 
yeah, and that's and and that's to me that seems to be why a vocation, this idea of vocation, this call to live for someone or something greater than yourself, uh, is I think has to sit above all other concepts of or, or the hierarchy, if you like, of the best use of freedom. If we were to rank order them, you know, yeah. and and it's it's just interesting that the, the church has this idea that at the at the summit of the best use of freedom is in very much a real way giving that freedom up for the sake of someone else probably then you could make an argument for a good use of freedom for example if i am sick i've caught a malaria i don't know what's a what's a communicable disease i've caught chickenpox or something then a proper use of my freedom is to not come over to your house and sneeze all over the place to uh, give it to you but please don't uh, no, that's true. But also, <laughs> and it, it, it wouldn't, while it, it's a good use of my freedom to restrict the spread of this thing, it's not a good use of your freedom to come over and shoot me to stop it from spreading. So there's a, there's a limit where both of our flourishing needs to be taken into account. Do you see what I'm saying? That yeah. everyone's, you, you try and find a, a medium where everyone's freedoms are not impinged any more than they have to be to stop harming each other in that sense well that's an interesting concept that you've raised then with the ideas that you know the world you know in march i think it was went into many countries went into a kind of a lockdown to the you know protection of the greater community and a big discussion has erupted since then around well hang on a second all of my what i thought was my fundamental right to association my ability to attend church to participate in different groups has all of a sudden been eradicated uh, for the sake of protecting the public health and uh, it, uh, a quick nod to, to a recent podcast that's come out, which is the Institute for Ethics and Society. I uh, have launched a podcast trying to tackle, um, at least at the first instance, uh, different approaches to pandemics. And uh, I think it was uh, Xavier Simmons who was on and he was making the distinction between extreme utilitarian approaches, so maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number of people, uh, seen in countries like China, where you had people who had to download an app and were told if they were in an infected area or a place within in, uh, suspected cases, you must isolate and all these restrictions placed on them versus other countries. I think the extreme, the other extreme he gave uh, was the United Kingdom early on, where it was just like, no, no, we want to create this herd immunity and let's uh, let's all uh, just go about our normal lives, and then tr and hope you know the health system kind of does okay with it. And it's a really interesting um, until the prime minister gets it. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and nearly dies from it. And so, what's what's the idea then? I think it's a really interesting idea. That I'd love to hear your thoughts on the the uh, the limits that you can place uh, on protecting the good of everybody else um, versus that guaranteeing those individual freedoms that form the basis of a, of, a, of a democratic society, if you like, or a liberal democratic society for that matter. I think that, that there should always be a struggle inside of us in our minds and hearts with this particular dilemma. Where's the boundary between looking after the good of everybody else and looking after our personal freedoms? I don't think, and I think there's a real problem in the world right now, is that nobody wants to think about the complications of the issue. They want it to be one way or the other. It's just mm. too hard. So they, mm. any, like for instance, our government has proposed an app and put an app out there and lots of people have downloaded it. It seems that when you talk to people, they're either absolutely, oh, you should all do it. It's absolutely, they're absolutely on side and they're not interested in any arguments about personal privacy or anything like that. 
And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people saying it's all a government conspiracy. And the, the latest thing I've heard is, um, what do they call it? A pandemic. So in, in, <laughs> insinuating that the whole thing is actually planned <laughs> mm. specifically to get us all to download an app, which doesn't do anything except track our movement. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that there are concerns both ways. There is deep personal concerns about any kind of privacy, but those concerns were in place when we first picked up an iPhone. And this has actually given us um, a, you know, an insight into exactly what they can already do with our phones <laughs> and traces. And I think it should make us think. On the other hand, uh, it's not, I, I think, attributing our government with some kind of organised evil, uh, organised anything, frankly, is is a bit too far. I mean, <laughs> we're just, we're giving them too much credit. I think um, the old Napoleon quote, never attribute to malice what can be adequately described by incompetence. There's a kind of a, a an overdoing of it either one way or the other. I think as soon as these issues come up, we should sit down and have a serious think about them and think, wait, what are the boundaries? We And not just do it once, but constantly be alert to these dangers and hold the government accountable and anybody else accountable for their imposition of, you know, any. okay, I'm, I'll tolerate a, a shutdown for a brief amount of time, but I'm going to revise this every single week. I'm going to come back to this question every single week and ask, am I still okay with this? And I'll let my, I'll feed what such wisdom that I have, which is not great, I admit, but I'll feed it through the process in the normal way never just giving myself over to one side or the other completely. Mm. Um, Subscribe to a a balanced view, you know, with the utilitarian on one extreme and the extreme liberty liberty on the other. You'd say, no, no, we all have to kind of work to compromise and give where we can each way. I'd prefer the name, the word rational than balanced, because there's, for instance, if the government advocated um, killing all people with COVID, the balance view isn't go, well, okay, let's take somewhere in the middle. Let's kill half of them. No, <laughs> there's no balance between pure evil and not. So you just, you take what's rational and you have to constantly come back to the question, is this for our flourishing? Is this respecting all the freedoms we have as best it can in the circumstances and still protecting us? Well, um, a question was probed to me. Uh, if I can quickly, it, it adds to this conversation. The, the, the question was probed, well, could the government not have some kind of flexibility in its policy approach to, say, account for, all right, we're concerned about high-density population areas, for example, for transmitting the virus. Could we, say, regional areas in like New South Wales or Victoria, could they be allowed to have less of restrictions because of the conditions being slightly different? You know, can one group, you know, can you apply one set of rules for one group and not to another? I think you should. I mean, the the problem with big government is when it makes sweeping sweeping rules that apply to everyone in the name of equality is that that sort of equality is simply nonsense because it's they're not dealing with equal circumstances or equal conditions. So, the principle of subsidiarity comes in there. The the, the local should govern it in in certain respects. They should have common sense. But I don't know. I don't know if you've been following it. But if you looked at the the Italian situation, the locals did in fact govern the various ways it was done at the beginning. <laughs> it was just absolutely. Who would have thought him. the Italians and governing? I mean, I hope I'm allowed to say that. But I just I think there's a historical, you know, a heuristic almost that kind of yes. beggars yeah, belief. Well, at right. the, let, let's let's not go too far there. All right, we've probably been going way too long on this discussion, so we might want to wrap it up. And we'll, we've got plenty more to discuss. So it looks like we're actually um, going to have to come back to this discussion and keep going with other sorts of questions. We didn't get to some fairly serious things, but that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, I hope so. 
um, let us know. You can subscribe at our website, thiscatholiclife.com.au, and you can tell us what you liked or what you didn't like. Hit us up on any of the um, social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and you can find all the links in our show notes. Right, write us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. That helps us get the word out. It's time for shout-outs. Cormac. Sure. So I think this week, as I've already mentioned on this podcast, I'm actually going to shout out to a, a very recently created podcast by the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I think that, you know, we think that we, we say on this show that you know, a Catholic podcast is a good thing. Well, I think we should all be nourished by different sources of information and media where we can get access to them. So if you haven't uh, had the chance yet, have a crack at the Institute for Ethics and Society from Notre Dame. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Excellent. Silvana. I'm going to give my shout out to um, a new series that has been released, crowdfunded, um, called The Chosen. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Um, it's about the life of Christ and it's quite yeah. a refreshing take. Um, I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to give that a shout out. Ooh, I've, I've had two people now say that's been really good. So I'll have to have to check it out. I want to shout out to um, a couple of my former students who are now out and out in the world doing their thing who've touched base and asked some deep questions recently and got me thinking about some really serious issues out in the workforce, which I didn't think about before. And just generally, thank you for, you know, sort of giving me an insight into what happened in their life since. It's always fantastic to hear from former students and, and still have that relationship. It's a fantastic thing. So thanks, guys. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. <music>